Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening attained his Master's of Divinity and Master of Arts degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in 1989. Ordained to the priesthood in that same year, Monsignor Pope has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named a Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. He has served as pastor at Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in Washington, D.C. since 2007. He blogs regularly for the Archdiocese of Washington. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Monsignor Charles Pope. Monsignor, welcome. Good to be here. I hope you can hear me okay. We'll start with a prayer, and then uh, we'll begin to look at this uh, glorious oratorio, the Messiah, and we'll focus on the first part of it which refers to the, uh, uh, to the prophecies of Christ and then his coming and his public ministry. Um, but uh, well, we can maybe look at the second half at another time. Tonight, uh, we, we begin with prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, this um, glorious gift of music you put in the human heart. And um, there's something uniquely human about music, something glorious and wonderful. And so we give you thanks, Lord, and we ask your mercy for, for us. We thank you for the gift of, uh, of uh, Handel and, um, of course, Frederick Handel, and who wrote the beautiful music here. And we, we thank you for the beautiful scriptural texts that are woven together. It's, it's just, if we, if, we, if we receive it as the gift that it is, it will really in, in heighten and enlighten our Advent. So we give you thanks for the great gifts you offer us. And we ask you to help us to also then be generous with the gifts we have received through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we begin, uh, you know, I want to say something that um, I, I have a young adult uh, group in my parish. A good number of them have moved into the parish and uh, they're very active, much more devout, I think, than uh, my generation was at their age. And uh, but uh, it's interesting to me how generations pass. And you think that basic fixtures will remain forever. But when I talked to them about how I was going to be presenting tonight on the Messiah, all but maybe one, maybe two of them, there was a large, good enough group last night, and, and they didn't know what that was. They hadn't heard the Messiah. And I can't, I said, my gosh, you know, we're going to have to, <laughs> we're going to have to remedy that. So I actually played them some excerpts last night. Uh, on my on my phone, but and uh, again, it's a it's a great and a glorious gift. Uh, this Messiah. Some of us who are older, it's become almost a tradition for us, you know, at Lent, uh, to listen to the Messiah. Maybe go to a concert 
or at least listen to a recording. I know for me it has. It really puts Advent in my heart uh, because the texts are so memorable, the music so memorable. Uh, it's a very, very great gift. And in tonight's session, I want to try to combine a little bit of theology as we reflect on the text, which are right straight out of the Bible, um, but also as we reflect on the music itself. There's a lot of techniques and things that Handel uses, a lot of what I would call onomatopoeia, you know, musical onomatopoeia. And I'll explain that as we get to it. But we have um, a, a great, great gift that's been given to us. Now, with that in mind, uh, I just want to say one word about music in general. There's something quite glorious and unique about music and the human person. You know, I have a, I have a cat. Some of you have pets. I could play this glorious music and she's just going to sit there and sleep through it. You know, whereas I, you know, I'm roused and excited. Music is just so soulful. It comes right out of the heart, the soul of the human person. And it can so edify and build us up. Um, it can also tear us down if it's bad music, you know, but it's, it's a remarkably powerful thing. I have been uh, in the care of people with Alzheimer's disease over my priesthood, like many of you have had family members. And whenever I go down memory lane, you know, which is that part of the nursing home where the Alzheimer's patients are, you know, the last thing to go is music. They, they just sit there, you know, they, they don't say anything, they don't respond, but you start singing a song that they knew. All of a sudden they light up and they start to sing it with me. And it's a remarkable thing. You can even find videos on the internet about this. Music goes deep, it's soulful, it's glorious, it's wonderful. I would also say that um, although we talk about birds singing or what have you, it really takes a rational soul to appreciate the glory of music. Like I said, uh, I've, I've played very stirring music and none of my dogs or cats over the years have ever gotten up and danced with me or marched or got excited. They just lie there. Um, further, I'm going to go, I'm going to be really bold here. And I'm going to tell you something that I, I want to be wrong. And I think, I think I am wrong, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. A very interesting fact is that it is never said of the angels that they sing. Even in the great Easter, I'm sorry, even in the great Chris, Christmas, glory to God in the highest, it says they said glory to God in the highest. Um, there's no mention. It's interesting. The thing we almost most attribute with angels is not said of them in the Bible ever. Not even once that I can appreciate. There's one maybe possible reference in Job, but it's too vague to really be clear. It talks about the stars rejoicing and singing. Is that a reference to the angels or is that the music of the spheres? You know, it's, it's hard to say. There's just something, my point, I hope angels do sing. And frankly, I think they do. All right. <laughs> but I'm going to say, because in the liturgy, we often speak of this, right? But I want to say that there's still something uniquely glorious and wonderful about music and the human person. It is glorious. It is magnificent. It's creative. And it touches deep in the soul. And I would say now as we get to Messiah, I, I want to uh, begin to, to go through this with you now. We're going to start with um, a little bit of background of George Friedrich Handel, uh, and then the idea of what is an oratorio, because Messiah is an oratorio. And then we'll look kind of at a quick overview of the Messiah with all of its you know, parts. But then I want to begin to focus in on, on the first three parts of Messiah, which pertain to, the, to Advent and the prophecies of Christ, followed by the, uh, the, the, um, the, the birth of Christ and then something of his public ministry. And we'll see how the time unfolds today and 
um, we'll, we'll, we'll let all this uh, unfold. So with that in mind, um, you know, about George Friedrich Handel, a little bit about him. He was born in, in, in Germany, Heile, in 1685, and he did his schooling there. Like, like a lot of um, great musicians, he, he showed great, he showed great um, promise even as a very young child. Uh, he, the, the word prodigy isn't usually used of him, but it was very clear that he was deeply gifted with music. And some musicians actually noted this before his own father did. And they said to him, you've got to get him training. He has a gift. And so his father allowed him to, uh, to, to get the training he needed. And uh, he, as he got a little older, he decided he wanted to compose opera. Um, and a lot of his songs have operatic qualities. But at the end of the day, um, he went to Italy to, to, uh, at the invitation of the de Medici family. And... <laughs> No sooner did he get to Italy than the Pope banned opera at that time. Eventually, the ban was lifted. But, you know, what was so bad about opera? Well, some people thought it was too sensual. It, it, it dealt with themes that were scurrilous, uh, maybe hyper, um, hyper-sexualized, or um, sometimes dealt with the pagan gods and different things. And so, uh, it, you know, opera, which we think is so, you know, formal and high class. Uh, for for uh, at least for the church at that time uh, in Italy was considered a little too risque, and so the Pope at the time banned it. But later, this ban was lifted. I mean, you, you know, there's at some point you just can't cancel things that are as as popular as that. But again, there are legitimate criticisms of opera. Anyway, but as he got there, uh, it, the Pope banned it. But so he began to continue to study, um, and. Um, Handel got sort of caught up in, in a lot of the uh, beginnings of the 18th century. Beginning with the Council of Trent, there were a lot of debates about what constitutes sacred music. Now, we have none of that today, of course. Uh, there's no debate in the church about music like today, right? Um, <laughs> yes, there is. Um, so in back, if you go all the way back to the Council of Trent, you know, there was a great discussion about polyphony. You know, we're talking about Palestrina you know, Vittoria, uh, you know, uh, you know, we're talking about all the great, um, the polyphonic music that we so associate with sacred music today. But at that time, it wasn't necessarily thought to be that way. It sounded a lot like the tavern songs, and some of them took melodies from the taverns, and there were a lot of things going on. And so the, the council fathers at Trent actually thought about banning polyphony. Um, but thanks be to God, my patron saint, St. Charles Borromeo, prevailed on them. He hired Palestrina to compose the Pope Marcellus Mass, and he began to um, uh, we began to begin to see and we admit sacred polyphony into the order of what we would call sacred music. But as you begin to get into the 18th century, there's also a lot of frustration or ferment or controversy over music, sacred music, and secular. So, you know, you think of some of the great orchestral masses by Mozart, Handel, uh, by, well, Handel, but also by, you know, Bach even. Um, you know, we think of the Scarlattis. We think of all these who pose these great orchestral masses. Some of the glorias would go on for 25, 30 minutes. I mean, and the complaint was that it sounded too much like an opera, uh, that opera had in, in sort of infected the church and um, that there was a, uh, a lot of, um, you know, frustration about 
uh, you know, this fact. And even in our own time, a little closer to our own time, some of you may know Saint Pope St. Pius X banned orchestral masses from being performed in churches for the liturgy. Uh, he said it was just too operatic. It wasn't liturgical enough. And so he banned them. And only after the Second Vatican Council did some of these masses come back to us as uh, permitted in the sacred liturgy. So you start to see that some of the controversies about what what makes music sacred and how much can it borrow from the world? And um, when does it start to sound too worldly? So you see the vision. So we have these, these, these kinds of situations where there was a lot of controversy. Now, Handel got caught up into that a bit. And um, we see that uh, the, um, you know, in, in the list there, um, we see how, um, um, he, um, you know, he, he got a little bit caught up in that. He eventually decided, look, this is too controversial. There's too much controversy in, um, in um, you know, in, here in Italy. So he went to England. And this is where he really begins to take up uh, his own uh, composing. When he first went to England, he was largely trying to compose Italian operas for the British aristocracy who liked, who liked Italian opera. But after a very grave illness he suffered, he decided that he really wanted to focus more on ordinary people and bring music to them. And for them, scripture and, and the stories of the Bible were still very, very important. So he, among the different oratorios he, 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 he composed, one of them was Judas Maccabeus, which was actually his most popular um, of his um, oratorios at the time. If you've never heard Judas Maccabeus, it's equally as long as Messiah. It's quite dramatic and a lot of good music in it. So don't, don't overlook that. Um, don't, uh, you know, don't bring the, um, you know, the idea that, oh, the Messiah is all that matters. The people liked Messiah at the time, but it wasn't like a smash hit. It took time to really grow and become part of the tradition. Whereas now in our time, Judas Maccabeus has kind of faded and Messiah is more on, you know, more well known. But nevertheless, both of these, all of his oratorios, uh, Judith, um, you know, he has one on Jephthah. They're all very, very good. So if you like Messiah, don't, also don't fail to listen to some of his other oratorios. Now, getting to... Um, uh, the, the Messiah itself, it was composed in 1741. There was a text, a scriptural text that was compiled, not authored, because it just used quotes from the King James Bible, but Charles Jennings um, uh, put the, the, the text together. And this was common. A text would be given by a benefactor to the composer who would then take that text and put it to music. And it was first performed in 1742, um, it was a fairly modest reception initially, as I said. The oratorio gained popularity, uh, eventually becoming one of his best known. But as I said, at the time, there were others that they, they were more well-known, like Judas Maccabeus. Um, now, it's interesting. Can you imagine writing the Messiah, as long as it is, first of all, in three to four weeks? Now, remember, you're not just quoting, you know, like the, the melody line. You're, you're, <laughs> you're doing <laughs> You're doing a uh, you know all the all the parts of all the woodwind and the flute, the uh, oboes and the trumpets and everything you can imagine the timpanis all that stuff and he did it in such a brief time three to four weeks amazing astonishing I have to think he must have had some help but uh, at the end of the day it's it's just amazing to think how prolific some of these great composers were Mozart was the same way I mean my gosh 
you know. Uh, by the way, Handel was a great uh, influence also with Mozart and Beethoven and others. Um, they, they esteemed him very, very highly. All right. So um, let's talk a little bit about what is an oratorio. Uh, an oratorio is basically a large-scale work for orchestra and voices. Typically, the narrative is on a religious theme performed without the use of costumes or scenery or action. So you basically have a choir and an orchestra. Oratorio, you sort of hear the word aura in there. You hear a, uh, you hear the word for prayer. We have oratories where we pray and so on. So an oratorio is a sacred concert. It's a sacred setting. These, these theaters, you know, you think of the, the ancient, the old acoustics um, that um, the, um, the old acoustics, which, you know, you say, how did they, you know, but, but you see these theaters were often very compact with lots of layers. You start to see that it's rather close in. Uh, this is one of the London uh, places that's just being depicted here. And they were sort of built in this style. So people were kind of closely packed in and the music was very present to them. Uh, whereas today, you know, we have a lot of assistance with um, microphone systems and so on. But uh, that's how they would accomplish the the kind of acoustics that you would need for intelligibility. All right. So let's let's take now a look at the Messiah as a whole. What are its fundamental parts? It's a very lengthy piece that covers the whole life of Christ. So you'll start to see a, a basic um, uh, a basic uh, outline of the entire Messiah. Um, uh, we see that there's, there's part one is Israel's longing for a Messiah. And we'll look at some of those texts tonight, then his birth and also his public ministry. And these are the parts that we particularly remember for Advent and Christmas season. Um, as far as the second half, the second full half, you have three, three more parts, his Paschal mystery and his mission to the ends of the earth. And then his second coming. These, these are the themes that are covered in the second half of Messiah. And I would propose, if you ever want to do it, and the ICC board wants to, I'd be happy to do the second half with you, you know, maybe in Lent sometime, uh, because those, those are powerful pieces too, and you know them very well. Frankly, the Hallelujah Chorus, you know, comes from that place. It doesn't come, it doesn't come from the, um, uh, the parts that we're listening to tonight. The hallelujah course comes um, at, at Christ's glorious resurrection from the dead. All right. So we'll see the um, we can see that in the future, maybe a future series. All right. Now, uh, you'll see that, uh, again, the um, these things are. Are set forth now, if you look at the Messiah, um, let's let's sort of kind of come in now on the first three parts or scenes that are given to us. So is, we look at part one, which is Israel's longing for a Messiah. And you notice there's kind of three scenes. There's the proclamation of God's will to save us. There, is, there are the concerns and reassurances that God gives us. You know, how can we abide the day of his coming? If God is coming to us, how can we survive, you see? And then scene three prophesies more about his specific birth, um, that a virgin shall conceive and people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And then uh, there is going to be a child who's born unto us. So that's part one. Part two is a, um, a description of uh, the, the, the parts of that. It's a little briefer than part one. Uh, you have a pastoral symphony there. Uh, that's just an, it's an orchestral sort of interlude. 
Um, I guess even then they needed bathroom breaks, right? <laughs> but anyway, uh, then, of course, we see the shepherds abiding in the fields that the angel of the Lord comes and says to them, suddenly there was a multitude of angels and singing glory to God in the highest. And so uh, part two is the birth, you know, how the Messiah is actually born. Now, part three, there is his public ministry. So rejoice, daughter Zion. The Lord has come among you. And so now the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And he'll feed his flock like a shepherd, for indeed his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So with that in mind, um, what, what I want to do um, is next then is to delve into those three parts with those sub-issues sub with them. Now, I want to start with part one. And before we listen to some excerpts from it and talk a little bit about the text itself, would you permit me to just read the text without interruption? See, the thing is that you have all these things in their separate musical productions, but you 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 want to not fail to hear the text as a whole. Um, and it stitches together texts from Isaiah, of course, uh, from Malachi, Haggai, and, and, and so on. And uh, we're going to see, first of all, in the first part, let me just read the, these, these prophecies of salvation. From Isaiah, it starts out, comfort ye, oh, comfort my people, saith your God, speak, comfort, speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity is pardoned. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For indeed, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked made straight and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh. We'll see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So these, uh, just stitching together these texts together. Now, let's take a little bit of a look at, at each of them. Um, let's listen to a little bit of the Messiah. We'll listen, and then after the music, I want to kind of talk a little bit about the, what this text means. fades out there. I'm only giving you excerpts. I can't play the whole thing because we'd be here all night. But notice, first of all, I want to ask you to think about the musical quality of that. You know, you've heard, I mentioned earlier, this word onomatopoeia. There's a lot of that in Messiah and good composers make use of it. You may remember from your grammar days, onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it says. So like bang or um, pop, you know, these are words that, that have a a quality that sort of creates the, the thing that they're, they're trying to describe. Now, in, in a musical onomatopoeia, the music takes on the quality and enhances the text and conveys the text in a way. So this beautiful opening line, that tenor solo, just 
comfort ye. And suddenly you feel comforted. Your soul calms down and this beautiful, gentle music. Dun, 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 dun. Beautiful in the background, gentle, almost like a lullaby. Comfort ye, oh, comfort me, ye my people, saith your God. Say to Jerusalem, cry out to her that her warfare is accomplished. So what's the background of a text like this? Well, after years of infidelity, the, the, the Jewish people have experienced terrible ravages of sin, kind of like we are now. You know, things were falling apart all around them. The 10 lost tribes in the north were gone, but wiped out by the Assyrians. And now Judah had been sent off into captivity in Babylon. Uh, the temple was destroyed. Uh, people were living in exile. Uh, they, people had lost a lot. They'd lost loved ones. They'd lost houses and land and property. And they were living now in a foreign land called Babylon. And, you know, all the warfare, all the pain, all the struggle. And the prophets had warned and warned, you know, your sins will lead you, will lead you into deep trouble. And yet still hardening in sin and a little bit like we're struggling with today. And finally, their sins collapsed upon them and they had experienced the full effects if you ever want to read the sort of the sorrow of the people of God, read Jeremiah's Lamentations. My heart has forgotten what happiness is. I shall never know it again, cries out in Lamentations. Or read the opening chapters of Baruch, which cry out, we, we, have des we deserve what we got, O oh Lord. We, we were not faithful to you. And there's a cry. There's a lament. There's a sorrow, a sense of compunction for sin and the hope for a deliverance and a messiah. And so these beautiful words ring out from Isaiah in the 40th chapter, speaking to people who are living in a foreign land in exile, sorrowfully waiting for God to deliver them. And there comes this great, beautiful word, comfort ye, comfort me, comfort ye, my people. And uh, tell, tell Israel and Jerusalem, her warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity is now pardoned. And so now the idea of preparing the wilderness a way for the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, this idea is both allegorical, but it's also literal. There they were in Babylon. Why are you going to get back to Jerusalem? Well, you got to go across the desert. <laughs> you got to go across the mountains and the hills. You got you to gotta literally make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So he comes to save us and he's calling us back to him. And so we must go over these mountains, and but let the mountains be laid low and the valleys be filled in. Let, let there be a highway for our God back to the promised land. Because as most of you know, in 587, they were led off into, into destruction in Babylon. But by, uh, by, by about, uh, you know, some, eight, some 40 years later, um, they are, I'm sorry, 80 years later, they are now, Cyrus the Persian has conquered the Babylonians. And he said to the Jewish people, you can go back to your land. In fact, I'll even give you a little money to rebuild your temple. <sighs> Comfort ye. Comfort my people, saith your God. You see, I've heard your cries. Your iniquity is now pardoned. And it's, it's behind you now. And so, so now, so now, let every mountain be, uh, let every valley be exalted or filled in. Let every mountain be made low, the crooked way straight, and the rough places plain. Go, go to this great, uh, back to the great holy land. That's the literal. And the allegorical, of course, for us is, look, 
the mountains of our pride, whatever hinders me from finding my way to my God, God is running to you. You take one step and God will run and he'll take two and start running towards you like the father in the prodigal son story. So again, there's this great reunion with God, this great mercy. And it simply says here in the next verse, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. So let's listen uh, to a couple of these texts that every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill made low. Let's listen to a little excerpt here. And so you once again, you, you sort of see the use of musical onomatopoeia in there, you know. It says, every valley shall be exalted. But then he says, exalted, exalted, exalted. He goes up the scale, right? And then he goes and says, that the tenor sings, you know, and every mountain and hill made low. And I'm, I'm exaggerating, but he goes down, the note drops. And then the crooked straight, yeah, the crooked straight, and the rough places plain. And so you see the there's this onomatopoetic quality that the, the music, it, it, it frames up the words, you know. And sometimes I think we, we, we don't stop to reflect on this, um, that there, there are these magnificent musical touches that really render the text. Now, having done this, and as they return to Israel, uh, to, I should say to Judah, to the city of Jerusalem in ruins, and they start to rebuild and they put up the temple, the glory of the Lord is revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. In other words, God has said he would deliver and now he's brought them back. And now the temple's rebuilt and the sacrifices are restored so that we can acknowledge God's glory. And so in the next uh, sample we'll hear, um, we'll hear the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. This, this is literally experienced in the building of the temple and the renewing of the sacrifices, that great fire that goes up, that constant sacrifice to God of prayer and praise, the blowing of trumpets and the proclaiming of, of God's glory. And all flesh shall see this together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So now that they return, uh, there is this beautiful uh, reminder that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Let's listen. You know this well.
Okay, and that's one of the more well-known, you know, uh, songs from Messiah. Because, frankly, a lot of parish choirs can sing it. <laughs> a lot of these songs are hard to sing, you know, like, his yoke is he, you know, the, the trilling of the voice and getting a whole choir to trill together. That takes real, that takes really professional musicians. And the typical parish choir can pull off a lot of those types of songs. But, and the glory of the Lord and the Messiah, and the, the Messiah, I mean, the hallelujah from Messiah, they don't have any of that. So you normal, regular choirs can sing it. So that's why I think it's a lot better known. But again, so we see the historical situation, right, that Isaiah was addressing. People who were just down, desperate, and despairing even. And God calls out to them and says, I'm still your God. Um, you've, you've needed to be punished for your iniquity. You needed to be purified. But this having been accomplished, I'm still with you to lead you. Now, for us, you know, this isn't just any Advent. This is this Advent. And, you know, many of us at times, we struggle with the condition of our families. We have troubles and trials. We're concerned about the condition of our culture. Um, why does the Institute of Catholic Culture exist? Because we want to try to save something that's crumbling to pieces. Uh, well, we used the beautiful Christendom that we used to know. It was not sin-free. It was not perfect. But we're saddened to see so much crumbling, our families falling apart, children being lost and, and indoctrinated into transgenderism and other demonic things. It's, it, it gets to us. It's frustrating. It's fearful. It produces great despair. We see only 22% of people even going to mass, and that was before the plague. On and on I could go. I'm not here to paint an overly bleak picture, but we all know that we struggle. We went through this terrible shutdowns and lockdowns, and some of us fear government overreach. Some of us fear the COVID itself. There's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, and God is saying, shh, comfort. Comfort ye, my people, you know. Come to me now. Turn to me. I still love you. I'm running toward you. Take one step. I'll run, and I'll start running toward you. I'll take two steps and start running. So again, you see the vision. We, we all need this reminder that we go through seasons of difficulty, sometimes where we experience punishment or just the effects of our collective sins, as well as individual sins. And yet God says, I'm not giving up on you. All right. Keep calling to me. And I, I send you comfort, comfort. All right. So that's kind of scene one of the part one here. They namely the prophecies for salvation that God will redeem his people. It wasn't just something about 587 or 580 B or, you know, 500 BC. It's, it's about come the coming of Christ at, at, Jeru at, uh, at Bethlehem. And it's also about Christ coming now, constantly coming to us. All right. Now, part two or scene two concerns and reassurances, because we're told in these texts that the Messiah is on the way. God will come to his people. But then suddenly there arises this concern, well, how, how can I endure the presence of God? Now, in order to illustrate this to you, let me um, remind you that in the book of Genesis, um, in the opening chapter, it is said that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the evening at the breezy time of the day. Um, what a, what a sign of beautiful intimacy, right? Now, the next time we really see an, a, a theophany, uh, other than just the one that occurs to Moses alone, we see a theophany is that God appears on Mount Sinai, and there's fire on the mountaintop and clouds and darkness and lightning and sounds of trumpets, and, and the people are like, whoa, Moses, 
You go up there and talk to him. We can't even bear. We can't even bear to, to be near him. We don't even touch the base of this mountain and we'll get struck dead. Now, let me ask you a question. What had happened? You know, had God changed? Impossible. Impossible. No, we had changed. And we were no longer able to endure his glory. The light of his truth and the, the fire of his love were just too intense, too much for us. And so that's kind of a little bit of a background for you. You know, there was a, a cry in the Old Testament, who can look on the face of God and live? Answer, no one. No. So with that in mind, let's take a look at some of these texts. Um, the, 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 the first one here is um, the announcement that the Messiah will come. It says, thus saith the Lord, okay, the Lord of hosts. So why don't we listen to a little bit of this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give a little bit of the meaning of the text uh, more richly. The Lord of hosts, yet once a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake. Now, in this particular text, the um, God is going to come and shake. It says, shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Again, I hope you're getting used to this now. Another onomatopoeia there. And I will shake. Yeah, I will shake. You know, and these, these things are uh, magnificent, you know, as I say, in the, art, in the heart of a composer. Um, there is a... Um, uh, but this this creates a kind of a fearsome image, doesn't it? Right. Uh, now, notice he says, I'll shake all the nations. Now, what is not included in this text is that, that when he shakes those nations, they will bring with them their wealth and their treasure, all of it to, to Jerusalem uh, and to Judah. Now, what but what is the wealth? You know, we think silver, gold. We think of all kinds of things like that. No, the wealth of the nations is their people. All right. So this is already a prophecy that, that the Gentiles, namely most of us, I don't know if any of you have ties to the Jewish people, um, but most of us are, are mostly related to the Gentiles. And it's, it's a magnificent thing that we should remember that God said, look, I'm going to, I've have, I have a chosen people to prepare for my coming. I'm giving them the law. I'm preparing a people. But at the end of the day, this gospel is going to break out of Israel and go to all the nations. And all the nations will come to Jerusalem, bringing with them their treasures, says Haggai, the prophet. But what is that treasure? It is not silver and gold. It is their people and the richness and the glory of the human person and the different heritages and the magnificence of the human glory. You know, you remember that famous story um, in the, uh, uh, yeah, I think it was... Um, one of the early saints, um, the deacon, um, wasn't Stephen. It was, um, at any rate, he was told to bring the wealth of the church uh, and to bring it all and lay it before Caesar the next morning. So he brought and went and got all the poor and brought them. And um, so that's it. St. Lawrence. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. I saw sister St. Lawrence. I read, I'm reading some lips here. All right. 
So uh, yeah, St. Lawrence. And again, th- we, we, we tend to, to get a little confused about this. You know, we think of power, wealth, we think of military might, we think of whatever. The wealth of the nations is God's people. And look at the beautiful fulfillment of this, right? I'm going to shake the nations and bring all people to me, all that wealth to me, those people. The church today is in every language, it speaks every language, it's in every nation, it's in everywhere in the world, sometimes in jail there, but we're there and we're preaching the gospel. Magnificent, see? Now we move on though. Um, the, the text goes on to say, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But then comes the question, but who, but who shall abide? the day of his coming um and who shall uh, who shall stand when he appears for he's like a refiner's fire so this question is asked how can i endure the day of his coming most of you may recognize that solo but who may abide the day of his coming and so on like that well how will we how will we abide how will we abide Because he comes like a refiner's fire and he will purify us and get us ready. Now, this is true for them, for the coming of the Messiah. He sent Elijah to them uh, who would come back. Namely, and and Jesus says John the Baptist was that Elijah figure. Not literally Elijah come back from heaven, but he was that person in the office of Elijah who was coming to help the people prepare. But this text from Malachi says that God will sit like a refiner and a refiner's fire, and he will purify, purify the sons of Levi. Now, we're going to listen to this text, but before, what is the purification or the refining process? Maybe some of you know it better than I do, but my understanding of it, it works like this. You, you, you never just get gold out of the earth, you know, just as a lump of gold. Usually, it's admixed with other things, ore and other things. It's all admixed. And so what you do is you melt the rock, basically, and you the different specific gravities of the metals separate and fall out a little bit like oil and water, you know, in your, in your thing. And then you can skim off the oil off the top. And what you have is the vinegar at the bottom. Well, you skim off the other things. And what you have left is the gold that sinks to the bottom. And then you do that a couple more times and the gold gets in, uh, to become a hundred percent pure. So the idea of refining and a refiner's fire is that something is subjected to the fire impurities are burnt away and separated or separated and what's left is pure gold and or pure silver or whatever metal you're looking for so that's the process and you can see that it's fiery but let's listen to the um uh this this particular passage
But you notice that the goal is to purify them so that they can offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, how do we exemplify this today in the church? Well, you and I are told that we must attend to the holy sacrifice of the mass and receive communion, uh, but particularly to receive communion, to do so in a state of grace. And this is why uh, the church offers confession. Now, in my own parish, I've taken to offering confessions before every Sunday mass, because I, I don't want anyone to come in that church who says, well, I can't receive communion or what have you today. I want to give them the opportunity, but they are to receive and, and make an offering and receive the Lord in holy communion in righteousness, in a, in, in, in a um, state of worthiness, worthiness to receive communion. So Malachi says to us here in this text that God needs to purify us so that we can offer the, these sacrifices. Likewise, they needed to be ready for the coming of Christ at, and, 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 uh, at the Christmas time. But we also need to be prepared and purified to meet him. Either he's coming to us or we're going to him. And you don't just walk into God's presence in your current state and think, hey, man, give me a high five. God is God. He's the Lord. He's holy. And you don't just walk up to him, you know, as though it were nothing. you got to be made ready. And that's why God sent tongues of fire on the first apostles to bring them, to set them on fire and bring them up to the temperature of glory so they could withstand the burning furnace of his charity. And likewise, he sent light, he enlightened them in holy baptism and begins to accustom them to the light and the brightness of his truth, lest they walk into God's presence and be horrified by the light. You ever walk out of a movie theater in midday, you know, going to a matinee and they come out into the parking lot and it's like the light is blinding and it literally hurts your eyes. It's like suddenly put two sticks in your eyes, you know, it's, it's terrible if you're not used to the light. And I can only say maybe something you had your pupils dilated if you didn't, you know, I mean, you just, it's just too much. And God wants to spare us that. So he wants to get us ready. But we live in a time, you see, where a lot of people, they, if you hate the light, you call the light harsh. If you hate the truth, you call the truth hateful. And that is no way to get ready to meet God. Because when you stand in the presence of him who is full truth, and you call the truth hateful, you're not, you're not in any condition to walk into God's presence, and he wouldn't even force you. You couldn't take it for a minute. Likewise, if you're not used to the heat of his glory and his love, it would be like just an inferno. You're being thrown into an oven, you know. And so it is that we have to be rendered ready. And so this text teaches us in Advent at different levels. They had to be ready for the coming of the Messiah. We have to be ready for the second coming of the Lord. or is we go to him when we die. Either way, before we encounter him, he wants to sit like a refiner's fire and purify us. Likewise, so that we can go to Holy Mass and, and offer him a perfect and worthy sacrifice uh, and receive Holy Communion, he wants to purify us. And so he offers us confession and so on. All right. So some ideas then about this particular thing, this particular, um, you know, approach. Now, the third part of this first part of the Messiah, this, the third scene, if you will, is the prophecy of his birth. So now we begin to move into texts that, remember the first text we're saying the Messiah will come. Um, God is going to spare and save his people. Um, the, 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 the second part talked about the Messiah coming and gave us reassurances that he would make us ready for the great coming of the Lord. And now the actual prophecies of his birth are put before us. 
So the first one we have here is, you know, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, a name which means God is with us. And so that's a gloss from, uh, it's just from Isaiah 7.14 and also mentioned in Matthew 1.23. So we, we, that's that beautiful, behold, a virgin shall conceive. And so and that's an alto solo. And then we come to the um, uh, a celebration of this announcement, if you will, by the choir. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up to a high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid, and say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Uh, and then we see again from Isaiah 60, arise and shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. So there's this beautiful announcement: that the Messiah will come, and when he comes, he'll bring. We should we should go and tell the good tidings to all of Zion. He's on the way, you know, and we should sing it and be not afraid, and say to everyone, "Arise and shine, for your light has come." So let's just listen to an excerpt here. Now, I, I would say here, um, I don't know if you noticed, but this song was kind of in what I, what I call dance time or cut time. Um, it's not like, oh, thou that tellest good tidings to Zion. Oh, thou that tellest good tidings to Zion. Get thee up and, you know, it, it, it's, it's, in, it's in dance time. It encourages a dancing. It sort of portrays and, and figures dance. It's a dance of joy. It's a dance of great of great, uh, of great excitement. Now, we're going to go um, to um, the, the next idea, though. We, we, we step back in a way because there's an old saying, you've heard me say it many times, if you don't know the bad news, the good news is no news. Why are they dancing for joy? Well, because darkness has covered the earth and the people. You know, it says here, the, the, but, the, the, but the Lord shall arise upon you. And you're going to hear a lot of musical onomatopoeia, onomatopoeia here, 
um, to in this particular thing. Um, you know, you'll hear the a big kind of a cello, maybe it's a maybe it's a bass, but I think it's a cello. And you'll hear the the bass um for behold, uh, he says uh uh you know for darkness. But then all of a sudden, as the as the um as the light begins to come. Um, you'll start to see um, the the people that walked in darkness, the people that walked in darkness. You know, I'm not a, you know, you 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 hear the real guy singing. You know, he's a good guy. I'm I'm just kind of moaning. But you'll notice this woo, and and sort of this darkness. And then it begins when he starts to sing about the light. He starts to come up the scale again. So I'm going to tell you this ahead of time so you can listen for these sort of musical onomatopoeias. So let's listen to this particular text. The people that walked, that walked in darkness, that walked in darkness, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great fire. I've seen a great light, a great light. I've seen a great light. Once again, you see, he does a beautiful job musically, illustrating kind of groping around in the darkness. But then they've seen a great light. Have seen a great light, and he keeps going up, up the scale uh, for a couple uh, passages there. And and again, there is why why are they dancing for joy in the piece we heard before? Because they've been walking in darkness, but now they're seeing and understanding a great light is on the way. And they've been through the ringer; they've they've experienced their the effects of their sins to the top, to the very top. And so we see that there is this great struggle that they're having, right? But on, on the other hand, God does not give up on them. But there is, um, there is this again. They return to the dance after re- reminding us of the bad news, which, if you don't know the the bad news, the good news is no news. We return back to a kind of a dance theme. For unto us a child will be born, uh, a son is given to us. See, and you know this piece is very. It's very uh, well known, um, uh, but uh, notice again just the the dance, the lightness. But also when we come to call His name, it's like all the angels of heaven join us. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, and so all of a sudden this sort of light dance turns into this sort of awesome. But we stop the dance and we look up high and we see God, who is wonderful, who's awesome, and so on. So we'll hear some of that now in this clip.
you see this alternation between a kind of a dance melody or a dance rhythm, and then all of a sudden a stopping, looking up and beholding the glory of God, and people just wonderful. You can't dance to that. Counselor. <laughs> that, so you stop, you look up or you fall to your knees and behold the glory of God. So we, we, you see now that we've come through these first sections in the Messiah, just to kind of quickly review, we, we saw the, uh, the, the vision of, um, of Israel's struggle um, and that God said, well, comfort my people. Uh, we're, I'm going to make a way for them. I'm going to bring them back to their land. And then I'm going to uh, console them. I'm going to tell them that the Lord is on the way, but I'll give them the consolations they need and the preparation they need. Then the Messiah's birth is actually prophesied. But there is this, um, um, there's, there's this great news, but we, we have to, again, re- remember that the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. By the way, one thing just to say about that, remember that, le- that one line, we didn't have it, I don't think, this year in the Roman rite, uh, but Zebulun and Naphtali, land of the darkness, um, upon you a light has shone. Um, and, and, and so on. The, the idea of Zebulun and Naphtali, these were the regions of those sons of Jacob who settled in the area we call Galilee today, where Jesus was actually born. He was not born in the great city of Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem, and then lived most of his life and did most of his ministry in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, up there in, in, in Galilee, considered by most Jews to be kind of a backwater, insignificant, bunch of shepherds and vineyard tenders and well, yeah, they, they produce the food that you eat, buddy. But, you know, anyway, you get the idea. So um, we, we had that great prophecy. And then again, the great dance takes up that the Messiah will come to us and he will come soon. And there will be to us a child who's born. So we'll look at the other two parts I wanted to look at tonight, the Messiah's birth and then a little bit about his public ministry. All right. And that'll bring us to the end of the evening. Now we're in... Uh, if you will, part two of the Messiah, which is the Messiah's birth. The Messiah's birth is, is, is treated in, in, in about uh, five different texts. They're fairly brief. Um, we, there's a little pastoral symphony that opens this section, which is, again, kind of like an interlude. And then we, 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 uh, we next see that there were shepherds in the field abiding and keeping watch over their flocks by night. Um, I, I hope that most of you are well past that foolishness that we were told back in the 60s and 70s that they would never have been out at night in the winter months. Um, um, and uh, therefore, Jesus must have been born more like in the spring. This is nonsense. And I think we, we've shown that to be the nonsense that it is. Of course, they're out. I've been in Israel during December and I've seen the flocks out in the field. So it, it, you can talk all you want about global warming. But at the end of the day, it's just not true, all right? And it's very, very likely that Jesus was born pretty much at the time that we think today, namely right there in late December at the solstice, all right? And I'm sure there's other topics and passages on that. But notice they're keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, don't miss, though, that nothing is said in the Bible that is just a throwaway word or a line. They're not just telling us the time of day. It's night, it's night. They're abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. They're keeping watch because there might be wolves or there might be poachers or other people. They're, they're keeping watch because it's dangerous, you know, and their flock needs care. And so 
we see that uh, all of this is an image of the darkness that we heard sung about in that right before our break uh, that we heard sung about. With that in mind, we go to the next text, which is, uh, and lo, suddenly, in other words, uh, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were so afraid. Now, again, you see, we have trivialized so many things in our time. And I want to say that there's almost no time that somebody encounters an angel in the Bible who, are, who is not so afraid. And almost always the first thing the angel has to say is, do not be afraid. Um, angels are awesome to the degree that we can see them at all is only by a special gift of God because they're pure spirits. And you can no more see a pure spirit than you could see a thought. But they're there. They're, they're persons. They're real. But at times they reveal their presence. And because they reflect the glory of God, many people would fall on their faces. We see other examples where, again, they're, they're horrified or or fearful um, at this coming of the angel. Not that they're necessarily ugly or anything, but rather that um, we, we have tended to trivialize them and turn them into kind of little fairy godmothers that prance around with, you know, sort of fluffy wings. Are there anything like that? They're, they're described as warlike. They're described as great hosts and legions and armies. Some of them in the highest heavens are described as the burning ones, you know, the cherubim and the seraphim. Um, their appearances are, are quite extraordinary, and um, even the lower-ranking angels, again, um, awesome, powerful, glorious creatures. And so it makes every sense that these shepherds would be sore afraid as they saw an angel of the Lord who came upon them. All right? So it's not just like, whoa, what's floating up there in the sky? I don't know. Oh, that's, I'm kind of scared about that. It's not just that. It's an unusual occurrence, but it's awesome. Awesome. We ought to, the angels summon us to the fear of the Lord. Fear, not necessarily cringing fear, but fear nonetheless that I, I am a creature. He's the Lord. See, I, he is he who exists. I am he who does not exist except by his grace. Um, this is, this is therefore a manifestation of the glory, the glory of angels. Now it says the angel said to them, fear not. So that you see the outset, first thing an angel almost always has to say, fear not for behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people to all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. So. Now, this expression, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be unto all the people. This is actually a very interesting thing. I think Bishop Barron sort of details some of this. Um, he says, uh, but this is fundamentally the opening of what's called an evangelion in Greek or an evangelium in Latin. What was an evangelion? Before it was, we call, we translate it gospel. But before it was translated that way, it was basically the opening of, the, of, a, of an edict from the emperor. And the, the town criers would be sent out. You know, how did you get news in the old days? You know, uh, paper was too expensive and had to be written by hand. So what you would have are these town criers. In the Greek, the word is karuks, a karuks. And he would stand in the town center, having received news from some other town, uh, and he would usually begin, if there was an edict from the emperor, he would start out, behold, 
I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. And then he goes on and say, the emperor today has decided to raise taxes. <laughs> now, the idea of this word evangelion is not that it's necessarily happy news, but that it's life-changing. Your life is different now because this word has been proclaimed to you. Um, or I'll give you another example I sometimes give. Um, you know, behold, says the Karuks, the town crier, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. Emperor Claudius has decided to pave the road from Thyatira to Laodicea. Wow, that is good and happy news. Uh, and it's also life-changing. But the point is, in both examples, is that it's life-changing. So the emperors would, would call this word they send out evangelion. And we've it's lately been translated, it's good news, but as Pope Benedict pointed out in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, volume one, that, that falls far short of the true magnificence of this word, because it's not just that it's cheerful or happy. The real point is that it's life-changing. Your life is different because this word has been proclaimed. So you hear here this idea of a gospel, if you will, the opening of a gospel. By the way, um, Bishop Barron goes on to talk about this in the Catholicism series. He talks about how you see all these hosts, these armies, you know, Caesar had armies. Caesar talked like this. I bring you glad tidings of great joy. Um, you know, Caesar fancied himself a savior of the people. All these things that are falsely claimed about uh, the, uh, the emperors, the, the uh, writers of our gospel say is really true here. It's true. So now, this glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. Here's the transformative news. For unto you this day in the city of David, a savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. And so you see this, this is changing news. This is transformative. Um, it's hidden at first, but something is underway, which means your life is going to be forever different. When uh, Simeon held Jesus in his arms as an infant, he said to Mary and Joseph, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and a sign that will be contradicted. So we see that um, this, this is a major moment, a life-changing moment in the history of all of humanity, that there comes now this, this fulcrum, this, this hinge on which all history turns, the birth of the Messiah. So let's look at the next quote. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army or host. Again, you see this is emperor talk, right? That Luke is using intentionally. He says there was a multitude of the heavenly host or an army praising God and saying. Now, just one final thing, to, uh, one thing to say about this before we move on. There is a... Um, this idea of the, the you know, the, the, the army and the heavenly host and so on, there is a, um, this idea, you know, that the emperors had great armies and so on. Um, there comes now this multitude of the heavenly hosts or the armies. And what is their weapon? They're praising God. You may remember a story in Second Chronicles where uh, King Jehoshaphat is under siege and um, he... He is told by God, assemble the army in the morning, but you won't have to fight this battle for the battle is the Lord's. And with that in mind, he, he, um, he comes and he, he says, you know, he says, but, but God says, put the choir first. And so as the choir went in front of the army, 
singing the praises of God, all the enemies of Israel collapsed and turned on each other and killed each other. Um, just the simple act of praise is a weapon, you know. You have, uh, on the lips of children and babes, you have found perfect praise to foil your enemies, O oh Lord. You know, angels don't literally carry swords and clubs. They carry the word of God. They carry the word of God. Now, notice it says they said, they are saying, and that's, that's con concurrent with the Greek. The Greek is very clear. They're not singing glory to God. They're saying it, but we all know they sang it, right? <laughs> but I, I told you before, it's a very interesting thing that, um, that it never says that in the Bible. Yet one, the one thing we most attribute to angels. But anyway, you get the idea. Now, I want you to notice again, as you listen to this glory to God, that there is um, there's some onomatopoetic qualities to this as well. Um, you hear kind of when the angels in heaven are singing, they're singing glory to God in the highest. And then, and peace on earth. And then it gets a little quieter. So the praises of heaven are loud. And then the, the response in the earth is lesser because they're glorious. And our songs are but feeble things, but theirs are glorious. So listen for a little bit of this sort of, you've almost got like an angelic choir with a human or a worldly choir echoing back and forth. And guess which is louder? And guess which is more higher pitched? So let's listen to this glory to God. So you can turn to see, I was trying to illustrate with my hands, but I didn't want to distract you too much. But there's almost like the heavenly choir back and forth. Good will, good will, good will, good will. And so we take up the proclamation of the angels and we, we echo it. And even though our, our proclamations are more feeble than theirs, nevertheless, you notice too at times both choruses join together. So the heavenly choirs and the, and the earthly one. And there's this magnificent dialogue, if you will, between heaven and earth 
of the glory of God manifested very paradoxically in an infant lying in a manger. Now, do you know, you understand that's like a joke? So here you are, you're a shepherd and you're out there. And um, according to the Matthean version, the shepherds heard something to this effect. For behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. Today in the city of David is born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And behold, you will find him lying in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes. Uh, and the one shepherd says to the other, did they say manger? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it said, manger. Hey, behold, you will find this glorious king, this Messiah, the Savior, this Lord, lying in a feed box. <laughs> you know, wrapped in swaddling clothes. The idea of his hands and arms being bound almost is pointing to the crucifix, crucifixion. But lying in a manger, you know, it's a kind of a divine comedy. Um, you, that's not where you find a savior. What, what, what? You're lying to me. Lying in some kind of a manger? You mean like a trough that an animal eats out? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so again, Jesus is our food. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's that beautiful line or that song or that antiphon that Vittoria set so beautifully to music. O manu mystery, mirabile sacramentum, O wondrous mystery and great sacrament, that animals would be the first to witness the birth of Christ. But anyway, you see, <laughs> don't miss the, you know, we just get too used to this stuff. Jesus is lying in a feed box? Yeah, that's where he's found. Okay, that don't sound like a God to me. Let's go have a check. Let's look this out, said to one shepherd or the other. Let's go figure this thing out. And they went and they found him. But again, it's, it's just, it's not the kind of, you hear this great heavenly choir. <laughs> they tell you to go look for him in a lowly, in a lowly place in Bethlehem, lying in a feed box. Okay. That's a little anticlimactic, would you say? Okay. So don't miss that sometimes humor is, is the understating of things, you know, to, and so on. <laughs> so, all right. Now he's been born to us. Hallelujah. Now, we, we go to the third and the last part I want to cover tonight. Um, but we've seen his birth, uh, the shepherds and so on, and then the angel of the glory to God, and then um, uh, he's, he's now been born. Now, we come to his public ministry, part three, and it's told very briefly in just a few things that, you know, one is that rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, your king comes to you, and then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and uh, the ears of the deaf shall hear, and so on. He shall feed his, feed his flock like a shepherd, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. So what we see next, then, is as we bridge into his public ministry, is Jerusalem, or daughter Zion, rejoice, shout, O daughter Jerusalem, behold, your king comes to you. He's righteous Savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen or unto the unbeliever. So that's from Zechariah. And again, it's beautifully done in a very light way as it's a solo here, uh, both by the soprano and the choir. And I have an excerpt here.
in this particular piece, you notice the rapidity is very rapid. It's very light and very rapid. Um, I think that there's an there's something to be said here um, for this idea of um, they're summing up a lot of his public ministry. But you think of all the places Jesus went in those three years of his public ministry, all over uh, not just Galilee, but up into uh, up into Lebanon and and over into Caesarea Philippi and in these areas to the north, all the way down into the Rift Valley and up into Jerusalem, um, even across the into the land of the Gadarenes. Uh, He's sort of all over the map, and you kind of get this idea of him moving swiftly about. Um, Rejoice greatly, your, your, your king cometh unto thee. Now, there's um, in, in, in the text, the opening text of the Advent season, I think the opening prayer, I'm paraphrasing it, I don't have the exact translation, but Lord, give your people the grace to run unto you who are running toward us. So the image of God moving with speed, running toward us, and we running toward him is the theme of many of the opening prayers of Advent. Um, there's a, um, a kind of an urgency, a speed by which he goes about this as he walks up and down uh, the, the, that, in that three-year public ministry. So I just think that the music there sort of paints that, that picture. So again, I'm trying to comment today, not just on the theological things, but also uh, on, on the musical themes. So now the next text we're going to look at in this section, um, it goes, um, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf be unstopped, and the lame, uh, as, and shall, then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Now, you may remember that when John the Baptist was kind of wondering, is, is he who is to come or should we look for another? Jesus answered and said, go tell John what you see. Again, that the eyes of the blind are being opened, the ears of the deaf, the deaf are hearing a word, uh, the lame are walking, and uh, uh, the mute are speaking, and the poor are having the good news proclaimed to them. So that these were signs of the Messiah. And our, our librettist here who chose these works, Jensen is his name, decided that this would be a good quick summary of the kind of healing and, and, and things that he brought in his public ministry. So this text is given. I don't have the musical setting here, but there you have this quick summary, if you will, of his public ministry and the healing and the many miracles that he worked. Now, the next text, um, it says it, it, another big aspect of his ministry, which is very often, uh, it's, it's, there's five versions of the, fee, of the um, multiplication of the loaves and the fishes in the four gospels. He did this more than once. And it, it, it really made an impact on them. And so, again, this, this is also a, a, a prophecy of the Messiah, that he shall feed his flock like a shepherd and shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and lead gently lead those that are with young. Um, I, I kind of wish I'd given you um, this, this in um, musical form. It, it, it's such a beautiful, it's one of the most beautiful solos in the Messiah. And it brings the very, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. And it's just so relaxing and just so peaceful. And the sense of just being cared for by God. And in that sense, it is it, an onomatopoeia. It just creates the reality it's announcing. 
And uh, so I, I probably should have put it, but I, I, I poorly sang it just now for you, but most of you've heard it before. Um, and it's just a magnificent solo. So if you get a chance, you know, get your own version of the Messiah. And uh, by the way, the, the version I've been using here in these recordings is by the 16. It's, it's the full Messiah sung by a group called the 16. All right. And that's the version I'm using if you're asking or wondering. Now, the next one that we want to look at is um, Come Unto Him. And again, it's that same extension of that beautiful solo. Come unto him. I, I, I'm getting that wrong, but uh, anyway, but it's magnificent. Take his yoke and learn of him, for he's meek and lowly of heart. And you shall find rest. And you shall find rest unto your soul. Just beautiful strings and just very relaxing. And if you're ever getting a little stirred up, just take that song and listen. And it'll it'll calm your soul. It's like medicine for the anxious. All right. And then we come to this rather this last uh, this last text I want to look at tonight. Um, the um, in terms of the Messiah's uh, public ministry and it's. Kind of a quick summary. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let me let me talk a little bit about this text before we listen to the quote. There, there, there's, um, there, there's a danger in a text like this to think, oh, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But notice again, there's still a yoke and there is a burden. We emphasize, people emphasize easy and light, but they don't hear the word yoke or burden. There is a yoke. There is a cross that the Lord has for us. Um, that was fitting for us. And we'll look at that word easy in a minute. And his burden, there is a burden he has for us. He needs us to carry some, some weight here. Uh, and it's light. Now, this idea of this word easy, the yoke is easy. We think a cinch, no problem. I can do it on the back of an envelope, you know. Um, no, that's not really what the, the word there. The Greek word there is krestos. It literally, probably more literally means his yoke is well-fitting or well-suited. Um it means that the cross he has, or the yoke, or the cross that he has for us, is well suited to us. Um, think of his work as a carpenter. Um, among other things that a carpenter would do would, would be to carve these yokes for animals. It would be like a, a wooden truss that goes across the front of the animal, or sometimes it would bring two animals together. And the idea was you, you had to carefully craft that yoke as a carpenter the, to the contours of the animal. Otherwise, you know, it would just create all these blisters on the front of the animal. You can't, an animal can't carry or drag a wagon with a rope around its neck. So you need to put a truss or a wooden frame in the front of the animal, but that frame needs to be very carefully crafted. So it kind of fits like an old shoe, if you, if you follow me. And so the idea is that, can you imagine Jesus maybe having, um, uh, as, a, as an advertising thing, you know, well-fitting yokes sold here, easy yokes sold here, you know, on the front of the shop. Um, but, you know, a carpenter would work very carefully with the animal and make sure that thing fit just right. And um, so this is, the in, this is the insight, not that it's a cinch, but that the yoke or the cross he has for us is suited to us. It makes sense for us. It's what we need to both stay humble, but also to grow, and so on. I see, the problem for a lot of us is that we put a lot of extra wood up on our shoulders that God never put there, you know. 
So we say, well, I don't think it's that easy. I'm like going out all the time. He says, yeah, you probably have the stuff you're doing, the stuff the Lord never asked you to do, you know? And then we blame God for it, you know? So he says, my yoke is, is well fitted for you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Or the text here says his yoke, his burden, not your big grand ideas, okay? There's no guarantee with those unless you're sure God told you to do it. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're going to be able to carry all that extra stuff you want to carry. All right. So be careful how you interpret texts like these. But with all that in mind, this is a beautiful summary that he cries out and he gives this message. And the final word of his public ministry is that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the beautiful, the beautiful lightness of the melody is, again, an, an onomatopoeia. Now, um, so you see there's it's a beautiful, you know, light song and so on. But I want to say that um, this brings us to the end of this, you know, his public ministry. What If we do have time in Lent and you want to do it, I'd, I'd leave that to the board at ICC. But the next parts are his Paschal mystery. So his passion, his death, his res resurrection and ascension, his mission to the ends of the earth. And even then, uh, the, the, uh, the world's rejection of the gospel, but God's ultimate victory. Um, and uh, the coming judgment and the, and the resurrection of all the dead. And all those things are in the second half of the Messiah. And so that might be something to look at, you know, at a future time. If we try to do the entire Messiah, even in two hours, you know, you'd kill me. Um, so um, it just, it's just too much material. But it's magnificent. I hope you've gotten a little bit of a sample. And I tried to do two things, to give a little of the theology of the text, but also the magnificence of the music and its brilliance to really bring this alive. And I hope we help to spread this uh, 
because I was really surprised, as I told you at the beginning, that there are young adults, you know, in their 20s and 30s who said they, they've never listened or heard the Messiah. And that's just unacceptable. So I'm going to have to remedy that. Thank you. God bless you and your ministry for the church and being here with us uh, this evening for our uh, ICC Advent finale, kind of our finale. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have our, our third part of our retreat on Monday morning with you, but um, but nevertheless, uh, to be here for this uh, really a special, special evening here at the ICC. I hope all of you have enjoyed it as much as I have. The first question um, that's, that's coming in here, Monsignor, is uh, it says, thank you, Monsignor, for helping me to listen more closely, connecting the sound of the music with the words and how the instruments and notes proclaim the meaning of the words. Uh, I don't find this in most modern pieces that are sung in the church today. Can you share your thoughts on modern music and its relationship with the state of the church today? Yeah, you know, I, I have to say, um, as I look at most modern music today, it's backwards. Um, it's, it's, it's in the church. Uh, it, it, it focuses on us more than it focuses on God. And I think that's the first problem. The whole topic is very earthly. Uh, we are gathered. We are the community. We are one. We are the light of the world. We are this. We are that. We're young. We're old. Okay. Um, I think at some level, uh, I've been mostly in my parishes, gospel music is sung. And whether your personal preference about that or not, it has this advantage. It's always about God. It's all about God, how good he is, how powerful, how magnificent. Um, we are in the groove. When we're praising God, the letter to the Ephesians says we were made for the praise of his glory. So when we're praising God, we're feeling good because we're doing what we were made for. St. Paul says, give your rational worship to God. My little cat can only worship God in, indirectly by being a, a beautiful cat. I can offer rational worship, you know, and this is the glory again of the human person to join in, a, in, a, in an explicit knowledgeable, rational worship of God. So the whole liturgy, particularly in the Roman rite, has been turned around. The altars were turned, everything was turned around. It was all about this closed circle of human beings. And that's reflected, I think, a lot in modern music. It's very earthbound. It's very self-referential. It's much less inspiring for all those reasons. So I'm not saying all of it, but I'm just saying a bulk of it. Um, I think the other thing is that we always struggle in the church. This isn't really a new problem, but that music, some of it is drawn more from secular. It reminds us more of the secular world than a world apart. One of the, the glories of good liturgy is that it's, it's otherworldly. It's not the same stuff we hear in the shopping mall or in our homes or on our, uh, our we don't have an iPod anymore, but you know, the idea, your iPhone, whatever you, uh, it, it's different. Um, and we're, we're stepping out of the world, the ordinary, into the extraordinary. So those would be just some quick thoughts. That could be some more can be said. So Monsignor, okay, there's a, a scriptural question here uh, regarding the quote from Zechariah, as well as other, other very, you know, we talked a lot about peace, about Jesus bringing peace. And the person who's writing in Zechariah says, he shall speak peace. But Jesus says that he came not to bring peace, but the sword. How should we understand this? I look around today and I do not see peace. Yeah. Well, Jesus says he speaks of peace in two different places. And it's very important to hear the distinction. In one place, he said just what, you know, what, what, what our, 
what our call, I mean, our, our questioner was saying, uh, namely that, um, I, do you think I came to bring peace, peace rather I came to bring the sword and so on? I'll, houses will be divided one against another and so on. Okay, that's one place. Another place he says, peace I leave you. My peace is my farewell gift to you. Now, notice again, there's a very important word, my. My peace I bring you. My, my peace. So if you and I are going to have peace, it has to be rooted in Christ and his truth. Otherwise, there's going to be division. See, people say, well, like, peace, man, you know, come on, kumbaya. And, and, um, but there's no real basis. It's just sort of this, can't we all get along? And in other words, ignore our differences, let people continue on in error and confusion, say nothing, and hope just everybody goes, gets well, you know, or does well. And that's not, that doesn't bring peace. You know, Saint, uh, well, maybe one day a saint, but Pope Benedict spoke of the tyranny of relativism. Because you see, if there's no real revealed truth that you and I look at and both agree to in its fundamentals, then there's no real basis for us to have any unity or peace. It's just who gets to win in a world of relativism and subjectivism? The person who yells the loudest, who has the most money or the most power, who can lord it over and force their way. This is, it's not, that's, there's no reason, there's no debating or discussing. It's, it's just power, raw power. Reality is what I say it is. And I'll become more powerful than you are, and you better well say it too. But, you know, so this is where this division, it's so, Jesus does say, I do come to bring you a peace. My peace I give you, you know, my peace. So, but he's, he's simply stating, I think, the obvious that, look, there's going to be many people who reject me and my truth, and it's going to cause division in the world. Um, but there is a peace that I do offer you, my peace, my peace. And so if it helps, I, I think that's the way we, I would answer that. Thank you. Thank you, Monsignor. Uh, another question coming in. Uh, the question, this piece is so beautiful and theologically rich. Do we know why Handel wrote the Messiah? How was he intending it to be performed? And did he have any personal reasons for writing such a great work in such a short amount of time? Well, I don't mean to be. Handel earned money doing this kind of stuff. I mean, we just have to accept that. It was his livelihood. And um, he, um, I, would, I would like to say to you, he was a very deeply devout Christian. There's, there's not a lot of evidence of that. I'm not saying he didn't ever go to church or didn't worship or know God. But it, it, it's not the first thing you think about with Handel. Um, he um, was clearly gifted and given a charism by God um, for the rest of us. As you may know, charisms are given to people not for their sake, but for the sake of God's people. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily mean that because he wrote such a beautiful thing, he's a deeply holy man. It's a gift that's given to him. Now, again, I'm not trying to denigrate him either. But he's not one of these heroically spiritual people who, you know, like Thomas and Luis Vitoria, who wrote he was a Spanish mystic priest. I mean, clearly, you know, that's that's at a different level. Handel basically wrote Messiah uh, because he was paid to do so. He was a commission to do it. However, there was, I think I told you, a moment in his life where he grew very sick. And when he came out of it, he says, I'm going to just stop catering to the aristocracy I do want to reach ordinary, common, regular people with oratorios and things that speak to 
the scriptures they know and love. And um, he saw himself as not just simply um, taking money from the aristocracy, but he wanted to write things that he probably earned less money with, but would reach more people. And it would be in the English that they knew, not the Italian of opera. So he did have concern, and I think uh, for God's people, and and I don't doubt that he was a religious man, but not an overtly pious man. All right, one, one, maybe one more question here, Monsignor. Um, uh, in addition to Handel's Messiah, what are your favorite Christmas hymns uh, and why? And re- a related qu- a question coming from Mitzi, this sacred music is new for me and I enjoy it. What other composers would you recommend? I love Vivaldi. He was, by the way, a priest, although he was... Uh, he was relieved. He wasn't laicized, but he was relieved of his priestly duties. Um, Monteverdi, also a Catholic priest, uh, wrote, wrote many beautiful things. Um, I love Bach, of course, uh, Vivaldi, uh, Handel, and just top drawer Mo- Mozart. Oh, my gosh. Uh, just such beautiful, beautiful things that he wrote. His whole series of Regina Chaley, there's about four or five of them. Every one of them magnificent. Um, so that would be that. Now, uh, as far as my favorite Christmas songs, you know, it's hard to say. Um, again, I'm going to love the most theological of them. You know, St. Ambrose wrote that magnificent uh, hymn, Come Thou Redeemer of the Poor. It's, it's more of an Advent song, but there's so many beautiful lines. And it says, thy cradle here shall gl- glitter bright and darkness breathe a newer light. While endless ages shine serene and twilight never intervene. From God the Father, he proceeds. To God the Father, back he speeds. Runs out his course to death and hell. Returns to God's high throne to dwell. I mean, just magnificent. Good theology. It's a beautiful melody. Uh, I love Lohawa Rose. Uh, I certainly adeste fideles. Um, there's, um, there's a beautiful um, song, Ere the Bleak Midwinter. But it's, it's one particular line that really stands out to me in Ere the Bleak Midwinter. It says that, Angel, they're talking about the 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 uh, the crash now, the, the 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 birthplace of Christ. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, and cherubim and seraphim throng the air, but only his mother in her maiden bliss could worship the beloved with a kiss. Isn't that glorious? I mean, just here. beauty of the incarnation. So, just quickly off the top of my head, where did you acquire your musical knowledge? Classes uh, or self-taught? Obviously, you have a gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, mostly self-taught. I did have brief instruction in piano and organ, um, but I I wasn't a particularly good organ or piano student. I had to pretty much pick it up on my own. And um, I'm not a great, I can't play all the great classical organ pieces, but I, I can play hymns easily enough. With You know, I do all the footwork and stuff. As far as the rest of music, I I, I don't know, in my college years, I kind of got geeky. I turned away from all the rock music I'd been listening to in high school. Uh, I tried to, uh, you know, I just studied, I just listened to classical music and I was amazed by the world. And, you know, there's things of classical music that I like more than others, uh, but I, I particularly like the Baroque uh, period and the classical period. I'm less fond of modern classical. I'm not saying there's nothing good there. I love, by the way, for modern, Carl Orr's Carmina Barana. I mean, my gosh. What a magnificent piece. Um, but uh, anyway, all those are just ways of saying that I, I mostly self-taught and uh, I just have a kind of a keen ear for, well, it just, you know, it's just a gift. 
you know, I, it's not mine. It's God. It came from God. Monsignor, can you please uh, give us your blessing? Yes. Um, our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. At Pax et Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis, Patris et Fidei et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.